At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bruce was always there. I'm, I feel like I've aged with Bruce. His body of work is elaborate and extensive. Bruce and, and Bowie are my two creative heroes because I feel like their work is informed by the past, but it isn't attached to it. They always evolved with their age and they always were trying to reveal a vision of the world now versus a, a, a nostalgic vision of the world 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I always admire their ability to continually try to answer the questions they were asking themselves personally through their art and through their music. And I think you can even see now what, what you can see Bruce wrestling with mortality now in his work in Bowie's last album, Black Star was, was all about him dying. He was dying when he wrote it. And it's a beautiful album. You talk about sprinting to the finish line to create, a work like that when you're physically ill and almost incapable of working. It's just astonishing. Like those two guys have never disappointed me. <laughs> they just never have. They just create beautiful work time and time again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We're getting off the Bruce train today, though I'm sure he will come up. We are going to be talking writing, publishing, Lawrence Block, Warren Zanes, who knows what else. I have Michael Dolan on the phone with me. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jesse. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. Tell us a little about yourself. So I live in New York City. I am an author and I am also the founder and editorial director of Winding Road Stories, which is a traditional publishing company based both here in New York and Los Angeles. And we publish a variety of books in both fiction and nonfiction. And prior to that, I was in the magazine business for a long time as an editor and a writer. So I've been a writer most of my professional career. Now I spend a lot more time editing other people's books. It's like being a doula for other people's books and you're birthing them into the world. So that's how I spend most of my time these days. Does that bother you? Do you miss the writing? I know you still have your hands in it, but and the reason I'm asking, I just had, of all things, a podcaster that podcast about state parks. And he talked about he was a park ranger, and the higher he got up in the park ranger hierarchy, the less he spent doing park ranger stuff, and the more he was in front of a computer working on spreadsheets. And so he ended up getting it out. I take it, do you still have a creative, does it still scratch your creative itch by editing instead of writing directly? Sometimes it's very rewarding to help other people publish their books. It's very rewarding to help somebody's dream come true. Really, they always wish they could have their book in a bookstore and, and you help them do that. So that part of it has been great. And you're doing it with a variety of people. So that part is fun. But you do miss the actual writing part of it. 
at times. I still write, just not as often as I usually do. Most writers and editors tend to go back and forth between things. And there are some days where you really miss it and you really wish you were just exclusively doing that. But the good thing about books is that there's a longer gestation period for a book. You have time. You have time to do both. And so I would be lying if I said, I don't have any time to write. I just have to work on these books. I am working on a lot of different books, but you can always find time to do a thousand words. So I think you just have to have the discipline to do both. And which admittedly, sometimes I get off the, the train on that. But for the most part, I think it's fun. It's fun to help people find their ideas and develop their ideas and raise the ambition of their ideas and make it something even bigger than they thought it could be. I always like to start at the beginning. When I have a writer on, I ask it two ways. The first one is, what kind of, where'd you grow up and what kind of music were you listening to? And then the, as a writer, were you a big reader? Was the house a big, is a house that did a lot of reading when you were a kid? For music, I had older siblings. I had an older brother and I had two older sisters. And so the musical tastes of the family changed based on our ages. We were all born four years apart. So there was, there was a reasonable size of distance between us age-wise. My parents didn't listen to music a lot, I think largely because I was the last of four kids. So we dominated the radio and uh, the, the record player, what we had at the time. My brother listened more of classic rock, what we call classic rock today, which would be the Stones and the Who and Neil Young and things of that nature. My older sister was more of a California rock, what I would call the Eagles and Jackson Brown, that kind of music, Linda Ronstadt. So I'm getting... So the oldest is 12 years older than you, right? Correct. Then eight. Right. Okay. And now then four years, that's the next sibling, right? And that was my sister, Anne, and her musical tastes were closest to mine. She was always ahead of the curve. I aspired to her musical taste. So she was really part of the reason why I started listening to Bruce, because when we were kids, I remember going to the record store and I remember my dad giving us money to buy records. And so this was going to be the first time that I bought a record for myself. That was my record, not my brothers or my sister. And so we decided to pool our money together. And the two records that we bought were Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones and Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce. And I remember putting that record on at home and the sound was just different. It sounded like they were playing in my room and it just leapt out of those really awful cheap speakers that we had. And I was mesmerized. I was very young then, but there was something about the sound of that record that was very enthralling to me. It just sounded different than anything I had been listening to in the house at that point. And so I think that's where the Bruce part of my experience. Growing up in New York, we had these rock stations. We had, there were two big rock stations in New York. There was 95.5 WPLJ, and they tended to play more of the classic Rolling Stones type of music. And then there was WNEW, which is 102.7, and they were more of the progressive rock station. And at that time, DJs had a lot of sway in terms of what they wanted to play. And I... You would think Bruce being from New Jersey that he would be on the radio all the time. But as it turns out, the first two records, the DJs were staunchly against playing him for no other reason than that when Columbia was promoting those first two records, they were saying, this is the new Dylan. And the DJs were so irate, (laughs) I guess largely because they grew up on Dylan and they, they were just offended by the comparison that they really refused to listen to it. And then there was, and I remember this as clear as day, it was a Friday night that WNEW, the the Born to Run was coming out and 
Bruce did what what is now a very famous set of shows at the bottom line. He did eight or nine nights in a row or something like that. And the bottom line, it was a club in Greenwich Village that fit 400 people if the fire department wasn't checking. And Columbia had given the tickets to all these DJs and journalists and things of that nature. And WNEW decided to broadcast one of those shows live. And it was on a Friday night in August. And at that time, the buzz in the city, you could feel something was going on. That In New York, if there's a line anywhere for anything, it immediately gets longer. And sometimes people don't even know why they're waiting online. They just know something good's happening and they want to get in on it. And that was what that feeling was like. And that concert won everybody over. And then you started hearing Bruce on the radio all the time. That was that might have been a long-winded answer to your question. No, that that's was... a great answer. A couple of things. One, uh, I have that feeling when I'm at like Dragon Con <laughs> or my friends talk about San Diego Con, right? Oh, right. there's a line. I better get in it because I might miss something. Mike Appel, I was lucky enough to have Mike on the show about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And he told the story a little bit of that, but also that he took the master of Born to Run and sent it out to a lot of DJs. And he said it was a cardinal sin because there was no album to promote. And so all these stations were asking, where's the album? And put some pressure on Columbia. Yeah, I I just think that's a lot of fun. The other thing is I get this a lot on this podcast about siblings. If you're the oldest, you're the one that's influencing your younger siblings. If you're the younger, you've been influenced either positive or negative. Sometimes if your older sibling is in a certain kind of genre of music, you totally go the other way, right? So yeah, that's not unusual to hear that. So how about reading? Was, were you guys big readers? Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stephanie Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Yeah, my brother was a big reader. He had, his room was full of books. Um... My mother always encouraged me to read. She would make me read to her every night. And she always had a rule that like when I was a child and I wanted to go to the toy store 
and I, every kid wants to go to the toy store and I would beg her to go. And she, her rule was if I went in, I could spend a dollar and you couldn't really get, even then you couldn't get much for a dollar, maybe a couple packs of baseball cards or something. But when we went into a bookstore, I could pick out whatever I wanted. So as long as I promised that I would actually read it. And so she had no qualms about spending 30 or $40 that we probably couldn't afford on books because she felt like that was important. So I always was able, if there was a book that I wanted, I was always able to get my hands on it. And at that age, I was mostly reading. I was really into sports. So it was probably biographies and things of that nature. I, I wasn't really reading any kind of fiction at that point, but it was, but she just encouraged me to reach. It didn't matter to her. She wasn't trying to get me to read Moby Dick. She just wanted me to keep reading because she felt like that was the pathway to whatever future I was going to have. So she was, my mom, I fully credit with being the writer and the author and the editor that I am because she really ingrained that very early. Did you always know you wanted to write? No, and not at all. I was a math kid when okay. I was a kid. I would go to other schools and compete in math competitions. And I think people thought I was going to be like a scientist or a prodigy, math prodigy. It wasn't until I got to my junior year in high school, I took trigonometry and I had a really bad teacher. He was the basketball coach and he was the driver's ed instructor. And he really had no business teaching trigonometry. And so I really struggled with that class. And I thought naively, I was like, maybe this is just my ceiling. Maybe I just, this is right. as far as I'm going to go. At the same time, I had an English teacher named Ed Schmieder who taught English literature. And he helped me to understand all those fiction books that I couldn't understand, like 1984 and the Red Badge of Courage and he just had a way of explaining those books that really helped me to figure out the themes and the deeper meanings of those books. And I thought, this is really interesting. And I became interested in that. And then the following year, my senior year, we had electives and he taught a journalism class. He was experimenting with a journalism class. So I took that for a semester and I was hooked. I was like, that's what I want to do. I'm going to go to journalism school. I had applied to all these engineering schools. I was going to be an engineer. And I applied to all these journalism schools. Much to, and so here's where the irony comes full circle. Much to the dismay of my mother, who really wanted me to go to business school, and she was like, "You really should go to business school." And maybe she would have been right, but like, she was pushing me to stay the course and not veer from the course. And so I went and asked my dad what I should do, and he told he gave me the best advice anybody's ever given me. He said, "I don't care what you do, but." Whatever you do, make sure you love it because you're going to be doing it for the rest of your life. And that gave me the freedom. He empowered me to go follow journalism as a career. And so I went to school for journalism. I was working in the magazine business when I was 18 years old. And I, I've been working in some capacity as a writer or an editor or, or in publishing now for over 30 years. When you first started writing, mostly magazines, was it articles, nonfiction, news yeah. articles? I, my big writing break came at a rock and roll fashion magazine called Details. Okay. And at that time, I was an assistant and a lot of, yeah, everything was nonfiction. And at first, I was just filling in on the things that people didn't really want to do which is I think what you do when you're the younger member of the staff is like, oh, this a gear piece on hiking. I'll do that. And it was really just basic reporting. And then the guys in the music section started to let me sit in and work on that. And I started to write more music pieces. And that was just some of the most fun of my career. And I started to do more entertainment type stories. When I left Details, they actually put me on contract to be a writer. So now I was getting a full-time salary to write. And that was the dream. And I did that for four months and then the magazine folded. Mm. And so I was like, I can't believe I've come so close to this. And again, it has eluded me. And like the roadrunner, it just was in my grasp and got away. But I had this contract that they still had to pay out. So it was like I had a job. I was pay being paid for eight months to do nothing. 
So what I did was I started pitching stories to other magazines and they were receptive. And I started to write for New York magazine and I started to write for Wired magazine and popular science. And my career just blossomed. And I've always remembered that feeling very fortunate because most creatives don't get that opportunity. It was almost like a paid residency for eight months to get my feet on the ground and to get traction. Most people are, are working check to check to get to develop their writing career. And it's just the ladder just keeps getting steeper and steeper. So I was very fortunate in that way. So where are you music wise during this time? Are you still enjoying Bruce? Are you expanding your musical horizons? What What are you doing as you're this up and coming writer? I think that being the music, working in the music section of a fashion magazine, you really have to listen to everything because you're reporting on everything. The other thing too is I grew up in New York City in the 80s. So hip hop was just burgeoning at that point. And so that was very much part of my listening. Bruce is always was always part of that. I was also a big David Bowie fan and that was always part of it. So I had a lot of different categories that I would listen to. Some out of necessity, just because we were covering these bands and they were on the rise. We want to know more about them. And in that time period, it was a lot of that rock and roll grunge. Sure. It was the Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins era. So that was very popular, Nine Inch Nails, that kind of stuff. But Bruce was always there. I'm, I feel like I've aged with Bruce. His body of work is elaborate and extensive. Bruce and, and Bowie are my two creative heroes because I feel like their work is informed by the past, but it isn't attached to it. They always evolved with their age and they always were trying to reveal a vision of the world now versus a, a nostalgic vision of the world 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I always admire their ability to continually try to answer the questions they were asking themselves personally through their art and through their music. And I think you can even see now what what you can see Bruce wrestling with mortality now in his work in Bowie's last album, Black Star, which was all about him dying. He was dying when he wrote it. And it's a beautiful album. You talk about sprinting to the finish line to create a work like that when you're physically ill and almost incapable of working. It's just astonishing. Like those two guys have never disappointed me. <laughs> they just never have. They just create beautiful work time and time again. I agree with you on that. Obviously, I do a Springsteen podcast, but the idea that we've grown up with him, he's 10 years older than I am. So I was born in 59. He was born in 49. And I missed the 70s because I was a kid growing up in southwest Louisiana and it was AM radio only so really didn't discover him till the river and in so many ways his music has taught us tunnel of love I've said that I think often and there are exceptions Michael but you have to have your heart broken a few times or you have to have been in a relationship for a while to really appreciate tunnel of love now, every time I say that, some 18-year-old kid comes on here and says, Tunnel Love's my favorite album, Jesse. And I go, okay, I'm not the question. I think that the questions that he asks in his music are very universal. And so his early albums were very much about being young and out in the world and, and trying to find your place in the world. And then when he got to darkness, it was a little bit more about what it was like to be an adult. I'm an adult now. Now what do I do? And born in the USA was, and, and these are my interpretations. I'm sure people can interpret them very differently. But born in the USA was like, what is it like to, to, to be both proud and ashamed of where you're from? Your, your hometown, your country. How do you reconcile the things that are aspirational and the things that are stains, right? And then tunnel of love and uh, was him searching to be a good father and a good husband and, and have meaningful relationships and what it meant to be those things. And so I think even his albums aren't necessarily attached to the year that they come out, but it's more attached to his age. And so 
you, I think you can check into these things at various points in your life. And they're just as real to you now. If you listen to darkness now at a certain age, it's just as real to you as it was in 1978 when it came out. And which is a testament to the legacy of his work. I, one of the most significant moments when he did the river tour a few years ago, where he was doing the river Mm -hmm. in full is Independence Day. And I liked Independence Day before, but I just, it was a cool song. And seeing him perform it live and him talking about the idea of a parent and a child not being able to tell each other how they feel. And the idea that he is now older than his father would have been when he wrote the song really struck me as, this is interesting. This is, and so ever since then, Independence Day has been a, a little bit closer to my heart, the way that I wouldn't have said before seeing that live experience. I always wonder too, you bring up a really good point, which is you write these songs and then you get older and your perspective changes because you have more experience. And I always wonder how he feels about them. If he feels like the meaning shifts in some way. I think we're all a collection. When we we create things, we're a collection of our influences, right? And so Bruce has this kind of unique set of influences of who his dad was, who his mom was, where he grew up, so on and so forth. And I wonder if in creating that work, as he gets older, the interpretations become different and the meaning becomes different to him. I would, that's something I would love to hear him speak about someday. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, I told this story multiple times, but I have a friend, Tom Zoller, who is a artist. He's written multiple comic books and he's worked on the My Little Pony book. And he jokes about he could never get a tattoo because being an artist, he would have to design it himself. And there's never been anything he's drawn that six months later he wishes he could redraw. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, yeah. And J. Michael Stravinsky from Babylon 5 and stuff quotes, and it wasn't originally him, but the artist never finished. It's only abandoned. And he will talk about going back and seeing a short story he wrote or a script or an article. And you just, to quote Harry Chapin, he only saw the flaws from right. Tanner. Do you feel that sometimes as a writer? A hundred percent. That that quote about art is a hundred percent on target. The work is never finished. It's almost like a test that you have to put the pen down. And I tell this to my authors all the time that there might be a song like Yesterday that millions of people around the world think is a perfect song. I guarantee you Paul McCartney would like to have that back for five minutes. Just (laughs) there's certain things in there that he would like to change that he doesn't feel right about. And again, based on what we were just saying, your experience changes, your interpretations change, your influences change. And there's a reason why directors are always going back and recutting their movies. They have a different vision and a a different skill set, a different everything. And I, I feel that constantly especially with my authors that are terrified to turn their books in. It's we ha- The art is complete when the person reads the book or listens to the music. That's the final thing that closes the circle, right? And at some point, someone has to read the book. At some point, someone has to listen to the song. And Bruce was tortured by it. You could see he would have all these different versions of songs and different lyrics and different intros and outros. And it was never quite finished, right? Until finally, the, when he had pushed the band to be on the brink of sanity, then it would be like, all right, we got to put the record out. Right. Isn't that the famous story about Born to Run, right? He hated it. And we wanted to throw it away. And when they finally had to put it out, the album. Yeah, I think about that. And I, I, and you don't want to say it this way to your authors, but it is, is, I think you've told the story you need to tell. I think you've sculpted this tale in a way that I think it's going to be satisfying. I think it's going to be great. And it's time to let it go. A hundred percent. I learned in the magazine business, you would do a story and maybe sometimes you wish you had a quote from somebody that you feel would complete the story and you just couldn't get it in time. And you'd be really frustrated by that because you felt like the story could be so much better with that. And what you come to grips with is that the reader doesn't know that. 
the reader is just consuming what you've created. And the same is true for books. The same is true for albums is that if you would put this song in an album or if you would change the scene in a book, would it be better? It might be to some people. It might not be to others, but they're not judging it based on what you think it could have been. They're judging it on what you've created. And so once you're able to step away and let that go, you can relax a little bit and just let the work speak. And it's a tough thing. Being a creator is a very difficult thing because you have, you constantly feel like it can be better and you're tortured by that, right? You always feel like you can make it better. But the flip side of that is the optimism of I can make it better. And so it's this vicious loop that you're stuck in. It's like, I know it can be better, but I can make it better. I know it can be better, but I can make it. And you just go back and forth. And it's not until that work is complete that you exit that circle, that loop, because you'll be in there forever if you allow yourself to be. I'm thinking back, I was at the Country Music Hall of Fame Mm -hmm. and there was a segment on songwriting and there was, you push a video and there's Tom T. Hall talking about the song I Love. He said, this is what drives people crazy. He said, I wrote it in 10 minutes. It sold millions of copies. I tell people that's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it works. Just every once in a while it does. And you have to have the confidence to recognize it. Yeah. That you've created something special in a short, because I think a lot of times as an artist, you probably question yourself like it was too easy. Right. Like, it shouldn't be this easy. It shouldn't be 10 minutes. I should spend days on this. And I think that was probably what frustrated a lot of the band members was that he had written these songs and they were amazing songs and he wouldn't even put them on the album. Yeah. And I'm sure that was a frustrating process for all of them because they had worked so hard to hone them into these wonderful pieces of work and they just didn't fit what he was trying to do. And so it's frustrating as an artist. You hear little Stephen Wright talk about not this one. Why are you giving this one away? And I loved his comment right after they released The Promise, that kind of box set that he Stephen said, if Bruce had wanted to be, he could have been one of the great pop songwriters uh, in history, that if he had wanted to move his talents to that, he could have. And I thought that was an interesting comment. That documentary, The Promise, I recommend to all creatives to watch. It is a fascinating look at the creative process. It's a fascinating look at what it takes to make great art and what you have to be willing to discard to make something special, what it takes to make something that's ambitious. I've learned so much. I've learned lessons from that that I use every day. There's this story in there that your listeners probably know. They're trying to get the sound of the record and they just can't do it. And they bring Chuck Plotkin in who's not a mixer. And they're like, we need help. We don't know how to mix the record. And he listens to it one day. He said, I don't think there's anything wrong here. And so he makes a few adjustments and Bruce likes what he hears. So they ask him to come back the next day. And now Bruce is ready. He's got things that he wants to work on. And so he's talking to him about Adam raised the cane. And he says, there's a scene, if you're watching like an old noir movie, there's a scene where the couple's on a picnic and they're out. And then the camera cuts to a dead body. He said, that's what I want this song to be on the album. And Plotkin, it was such a great set of clues because he wasn't telling me what to do. He was just telling me how this song feels or how he wants it to feel on the album. And I use that with authors all the time. I'll be like, there's this song that, and there is one book that we have coming out and there's a scene in it. And I literally told the author, Go listen to Candy's Room five times, and then I want to talk to you about it. And what I wanted was for the characters, for the woman to be this sort of empowered woman that was almost toying with this naive guy that thought he was going to win her over, but had no chance. And But he's convinced that he's the one, but she's out of his league in that way and in experience. And the authors got it, went in, redid the scene, and it was perfect. I never would have gotten to that without that documentary helping to understand that you could cross influences and describe things in a different way. That's a little bit more of a vibe rather than saying, this is what you need everybody to do and giving them a meticulous list of how to change it. 
So I'm going to, we're going to get back to Bruce, but I want to talk about Warren Zane's book and that's how we connected. You had tweeted wonderful praise about it. And Warren was nice enough to join me on the podcast that he's, I asked him, are you tired of being on Springsteen podcast? Because every one of us have had him on. I told him it felt like a mystery novel to me because it was, why did this artist take this step backwards before going forward again? And you were trying to discover. So I'd love for your thoughts as not only a Bruce fan, but if you change your hat as a creative person, as an editor, your thoughts on the book. Warren did an amazing job. First of all, just to get Bruce's cooperation is a magic trick in and of itself. And uh, it's an album that holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts. Not only because it's an amazing piece of art, but it was a courageous career choice to make. Right. And I think that in a lot of ways his trajectory is, is not the same without Nebraska because I think it showed people his integrity as an artist. And in a lot of ways, it probably is responsible for keeping the E Street Band together for so long. And I'll explain what I mean. I'm fascinated by the Get Back documentary with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've watched it. It's nine hours. I, I would have watched it for 90 hours. Yeah, because those guys were at the peak of their fame. They ha all had the autonomy to do whatever they wanted creatively. And yet they were still there day after day trying to work together to create stuff. But they also had their own ideas clearly of what they wanted to do and what their idea of music, their music was and how they were evolving. And I think Bruce was in, was evolving in a way that was different than probably what his band wanted to do. Stevie wanted to write pop songs. He was like, we're the best pop band in the world. Like we can do this. We're here. And so it's at that time in the music industry. And Bruce has talked about that. You were on this treadmill. You had to put out a record every year and a record had to be popular and it had to have radio songs. And that there were a lot of parameters about what the record was supposed to be. And he bravely, after sitting out three years and then making an, a record that was really popular, took a step back and started working on these stripped down songs that were important to him, that were asking questions that people weren't asking at the time, as what is this country becoming? And are we fracturing as a country? Is there is there Are there people being left out of the American dream? And it's a very important record in that way. And I'm so glad Warren wrote that book because they address a lot of these how they got there and what the importance was. But I think Bruce being able to do that and express himself in that way and be creative in that way allowed him to preserve the band and have them come back together to do Born in the USA and to come back together time and time again. As they, It's amazing. Like the reunion tour was in 1999. Right? That's almost 25 years ago now. And so he found a way to scratch that creative itch that he had and to follow his ambitions and create work while still maintaining the trajectory of that of the band and you see this with mystery writers a lot i know you love mysteries like when a mystery writer has a series his agent and his publisher will tell him do not veer from that series you have fans that want this don't and f with the formula you're you're you, why would you write a different book that starts at zero yeah with zero fans and yeah. so the conventional wisdom is don't get off that track stay on that track but yet as an author you want to create something else you have another idea you have an ambitious idea and you want to see if you can fulfill that ambition and so you do it bruce did that i think he gained the respect of a lot of people the record did reasonably well for it wasn't born to run trilogy it was right. something completely different and i think that allowed him to come back and do born in the usa and not feel bad about it not feel like oh, i'm just doing a pop record 
not that it's necessarily a pop, but there were pop songs on there. Sure. But absolutely. but not but he didn't feel like he was fulfilling what the machine's ambitions of him were. Right. Yeah. And if anybody hasn't read the book, Warren did an amazing job. He really treated the material with love and care. And I think as fans, we all respect that. It is truly I've recommended it to tons of people who aren't Springsteen fans, just saying this is a fascinating breakdown of an artist trying to find his way. And as Warren talks about it, there's in-breaths and out-breaths, right? And so Mm -hmm. Bruce needed to take an in-breath before he could go next. And I just thought it was fascinating, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. I really – and I told this to Warren. I said, this is the kind of book that after I read the book, I want to hear Nebraska. Then after I listen to Nebraska, I want to reread the book. Yeah, because it feeds itself. You're like, oh, man, I need to go back and read this. So, yeah, I thought absolutely wonderfully done. It's hard to write about music in that long form and to keep people captivated by it. But it's an intriguing work and it deserved that look. Yeah. In a way that a lot of albums don't. Yes. And he was very kind to me. I he talked about that time he interviewed Bruce and he said, what else you got on the very first question? And so I asked Warren, do you get that joke a lot? He goes, I do. He said, but I understand why it points to you because that's the nightmare. If you're an interviewer, like they're going to do that. Yeah. So I want to get back to, I always think Michael, the amount of times you've seen an artist you love is not a fair barometer of what kind of fan you are. In fact, I just had a wonderful woman that, Joni Mitchell has been her muse her whole life, and she's never seen her life. Just it's never worked out. But Joni's music has been everything to her. Right. So for the record, do you have you seen Bruce live? And if so, do you count? For the record, it's easy to count because I've only seen him twice. Okay. I saw him once. The first time I tried to see him was the Born in the USA tour. That was just a juggernaut. And it was I was in high school at the time and it was just out of my pay grade to get tickets every. At that time, like every year, there would be this tour that just captivated everybody that was like the event to go to in town. And one year it was the Stones were touring for Tattoo You. I think the year before it might have been 84 too. the Jacksons were touring the Victory Tour. They they had Jackson five had reunited. And then Born in the USA was just a juggernaut stadium tour. And it was just very difficult to get tickets because Bruce fans will go every night. You're not just fighting for one, like you're fighting for a ticket at every show, right? Not just one. So I really want to go. I didn't make it there. And then life intervened, college and what have you. And then when I was a little bit more of a grown up, when the reunion tour came around, at the time, I thought this might be the last time I get to see him with the E Street Band. And and I had the money to go and buy the tickets. So my sister and I went and saw that. So that was the first time I saw him. The second time was most recently on Broadway. That you know, I na- I'm so naive, <laughs> Jesse. I'm like, I don't want to take a ticket away from somebody that's never seen him before. And I'm probably just taking I probably would just be taking a ticket away from somebody who's seen him 20 times before or 30 times. But I always feel like someone should go, just like you said, that Joni Mitchell fan yeah. should have that ticket, right? And But when he was performing on Broadway, I felt like it was different. Like, was it the first time or the second time? The second round or the first the se- round? It was the second round. Okay. And I just felt like that was something that I wanted to, especially it's my hometown. Sure. I, it was just something that I wanted to experience and see, and it, it was a very different show because he's talking to the audience a lot and he's telling stories. It was very autobiographical. And so you're experiencing it in a completely different way. And I'm really glad that he he did a version of that for Netflix so that everybody got a chance to experience that. And it wasn't this sort of exclusive thing that you had either you were in or out of the club for it. Sure. Yeah. He made it available for everyone to see. And Tom Zinni did an amazing job directing it. It's gorgeous. Yeah. But that's it. It's just been those two times. I was really, when I was younger, I really was a Bowie guy. And that, okay. like, I'd go to different cities for those shows. All right. Peter Gabriel was another guy. I would. How many times have you seen Bowie? 
It was over 30. Okay. It was just, I would, especially towards the end, any chance that I got to go, I would go. Cause you just, you never knew it was the last, what the last show was going to be. And that was, I don't know, like, it's interesting because Bruce has recorded so much live music. Like that show that I was talking about earlier at the bottom line, you can go on YouTube and listen to it. Yeah. The radio broadcast is available for anybody who wants to listen to it. During the pandemic, everybody was home and trapped at home and stuff. And I started to get into collecting Bowie concerts. Okay. And I, and it all started because I was talking to, to this woman who had gone to Bowie's last concert in Germany. And she was like, I wish I just had that concert to listen to again. And I was like, it's gotta, someone has to have it. There, it has to exist. And I found this guy in the Netherlands who had this whole list of every concert Bowie had ever done. Okay. And it wasn't entirely clear if there were recordings for all of it. Yeah. So I sent an email. I said, I don't even know if you speak English. So I apologize in advance if you don't understand this email. But do you know if a concert exists for this last concert? And the guy emailed me back a few hours later because of the time difference. And he goes, yeah, I have it. What's your we transfer? I'll send it to you. And he said, if you want to pick two other shows, just pick two other shows and I'll send them to you. And I was like, oh, my God. And now I'm thinking, this guy sending me a computer virus. I've never talked to this guy before. Yeah, exactly. To the other side of the world. Like, right. This could be an absolute disaster. And so. <laughs> and the then guy... you've got to explain to your significant other. You did what? Yeah. Oh, but it was I, a Bowie concert. The, I mean, do guy, you understand? Yeah. This do you get it? stranger in the Netherlands sent me this computer virus that shut yeah. down our entire house. But he sent me the Germany concert. He sent me the first concert I'd ever seen at Madison Square Garden. And then he threw in another one from the seventies from London. That was like, he's that one's on me. And I downloaded them and they were all perfect. (laughs) And it's just amazing how you can make these friends. I'm sure through the podcast, you've made friends all over the world doing this. It's extraordinary. It, it, I, the other day, about a a couple months ago, I brought up the fact that because of the, they say that the rising tour, they don't have a lot of good masters so when they're doing the official releases, there's not going to be many rising. And 2002 here in Dallas was the first show I'd saw live. And I was like, gosh, I would love to do that. And sure enough, within two hours, someone said, yeah, here's the bootleg. Yeah. I was like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's amazing. It the is. Generosity. I think when you're a fan and someone shares your passion that way, and you probably experienced this a lot through the podcast, like the generosity is just extraordinary. It's you want the music to be shared. You want people to have that communal experience that you had. And the thing that was really interesting to me, and I might do this with Bruce now because I've collected a lot of the Bowie stuff, is that you listen to these concerts and it's almost like you're hearing them in a different way. You hear a show that you haven't heard before and there's something in there that you're just like, it's a revelation to you. And it's a fascinating experience to go through an artist's work like that. And it's not intentional. They're not recording these and with the hopes of building a larger portfolio. It just evolves. But you have that communal experience with the people who were at that show mm-hmm. or listen to that show. And it, it brings us together in a lot of ways. Are you going to try to see a show on this tour? I had my eyes, like many people, on those MetLife shows. I felt like that was a, a good ticket to go to unfortunately BoucherCon, the mystery writers convention is at the same exact time in san diego so i'm going to be on the opposite side of the country when it happens so now my two potential goals would be he's playing in pittsburgh which is a really sneaky great place to see a concert especially yes. if you're from new york it's not that far away it's pretty affordable i was in pittsburgh last week for the horror writers convention i saw that on Twitter. I wanted to ask you about that. I was there. Taylor Swift was there. Our hotel was about 50% goths who wrote horror stories, 30% teenage ingenues in sparkly dresses with their parents that were getting ready to go to the concert. And then the last 15, 20% was an African-American wedding of people just exquisitely dressed in tuxedos and dresses and they all looked amazing and this all came together in the lobby and it was fascinating to and just 
at first it was very standoffish. It was like, who would, I can't believe our thing is the same weekend as their thing. Understandably, right? You just go in and think we're going to run the hotel. We're going to, and a friend of mine overheard two girls talking in the bathroom and one of them was like, what's going on? And the other one said, I think there's a Dracula concert tonight. <laughs> so, but then you start talking, like they came in and they started looking at the horror books and they're like, I like horror. And I, and I was talking to them about Taylor Swift. And then they were like, yeah, people make fun of us. And I was like, don't let anybody make fun of you. If an artist's work touches your soul, like that relationship is sacrosanct. And don't let anybody convince you that it's uncool. Because it's the it's one of the coolest things you can have. And I, I it's absolutely wonderful. agree. Yeah. Uh, the closest I've come to that is uh, for many years, I've gone to Dragon Con in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And it's over Labor Day weekend. It's over about five or six hotels. It's a huge science fiction pop culture and weekend. And also, usually, there is a college football, like a... Um, there'll be two or three teams playing, I guess there are four or six teams playing an attorney. And so you'll be, you'll see all these people dressed up in their LSU gear next to people in Klingons. And on Friday, downtown Atlanta, there's people in their suits because it's the banking capital. And it's just all this mixture of everything going on. And it, you're right. It is just this beauty of seeing all these people are passionate about different things. That's great. I was going to go to Dragon Con. It's the same weekend. It's, okay. a, it's the same weekend as all, that all this other stuff is going on. Um, yeah. But to, to your point about college football, when I was at the Mystery Writers Convention last year, one of my friends, Mark Westmoreland, Mark, if you're listening, I love you, brother. The, he was up for a big award at the show and Georgia was playing that the Georgia University football team was playing. And yeah. he, in all seriousness, has said, if that game is going on when the awards are going on, I'm watching the game. Like he was not going to go to receive the award that he was potentially going to win because he wasn't going to miss his football team play. So it is a religion in uh, yes, Georgia. It is. It is very much. So what's next for you career-wise? We are still very much in the throes of producing books for Winding Road. We have, we just had a run of books come out over the last two months, about eight books in the last two months. Now, um, is there, you said you're a traditional publishing house. Do you have a specific genre or do you just try to do a wide range of books? We do a wide range of books. We, we publish in science fiction, mystery, horror, romance, to some people, horror and romance are the same thing, but we've separated them. And we also do nonfiction as well. And when I started the company, I felt like the reason why I started the company was I was ghostwriting books for other people. And they I worked with an agency and they would match us up with this person wants to write a book. They have no ability to write a book. You are interested in their subject matter. And they, they it would be like an arranged marriage. And I would help them write the book. And it was a lot of fun to help somebody with their life story, et cetera. But when it was done, that person had no idea how to sell the book. They didn't have an agent. They didn't have, they didn't know how to navigate the publishing world. And so they would be holding onto my pant leg being like, don't leave me. I don't know what to do with this. And after that experience, it had occurred to me, I wonder if people have really good books out there that they just shelved because they got frustrated by the process. And when we opened the doors, we said, let's open it wide. Let's see what's out there. Let's see where the good stories are. And they were just coming in from different genres. And so it was. we got a great science fiction book. It's like, all right, we're a science fiction publisher now. And if we got a great mystery book, it's great. We're a great mystery. So our goal was really just to create books that people wanted to read, stories that people wanted to read. Whatever the genre was, we were willing to work with it. Not the best marketing strategy. Probably would have been better just to focus in one lane and build a community around but now I think it's paying off because two years down the road, we have five or six books in each genre. So we've built these little communities in these different genres. And it's really fulfilling the ambition that I had and the hope that I had. As someone who's been a reader my whole life, just I was the kid reading the young 
we didn't know what they were that they weren't young adult books back then, but the kid book sports books about the baseball players and the football players and all these, I was there books and stuff. And so I've just been a reader my whole life. And I, I love the fact because there is a lot of talk about the struggles publishing is having. So I'm glad to hear that things are going well. Yeah, it's, I think the internet has devalued a lot of creative work. People are used to reading things for free. People are used to listening things for free. And I think everybody has tried to figure out how to survive and thrive in that world. I still think if you create good music, if you create good books, if you tell a good story, if you create something that people want, you will find a way to make a living out of it. I'm very grateful to all my authors. They work so hard. It's a full-time job just to promote books these days because to, to, it's such a crowded world. But I think it's a joyous thing that people are creating. I think it's joyous that people self-publish, that pe people more people are writing than ever before, that it's not, they don't feel like it's this gate-kept community that people can create. And people can create amazing podcasts now and, and broadcast them, right? So I, it, I think the world's a much better place for all of it. It's just a, trying to figure out a way where people can be fairly compensated for the work they create. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, you know, I, and I guess maybe just because I've always thought about that because I've had friends in the creative business of, we're so used to, I don't need to buy the album. I'll just listen to it on Spotify. Yeah, the, the artist needs to be paid for their work. And I, I finally have moved to an ebook. For the longest time, I was the guy that no, I've got to have, I've got to have a physical copy. And there still is something beautiful about a physical copy. I converted over when I was traveling a lot, and mm -hmm. I realized a Kindle is a lot easier to pack than four books. Yep. <laughs> if I'm going to be gone for a week, but yeah, I think the idea, and I do worry about that that people don't value the creative arts that they don't see a value in paying people for what they're work. And so good for you. I'm glad you're doing this. Is there anything I should have asked you that I had? And I feel like we could talk another hour about music, but is there any highlights that I should have asked you that I didn't? I can't. I'm glad that we got to talk about Bruce as much as we did. No, I, and I'm grateful that you allowed me to share the Winding Road stories background. I'm glad that Warren wrote that book to connect us. I am <laughs> too. I am very That's much. the magic of the internet. It is, is the beauty, friends. yes. Yeah. Uh, very nice. So if someone wants to find out what's the best way to reach you and what's the best way to find out what you guys are publishing? Sure. In terms of what we're publishing, Winding Road Stories, all spelled out, .com is the website. All the books are listed there. And there really is something for everybody. We publish in a lot of different genres. The my personal social media, I'm on Twitter at Mike Dolan NY and I'm on Instagram at Michael Dolan author. Bruce fans, reach out, follow me. I'll follow you back. I, I love connecting with other people. Who knows? Maybe there's another Bruce book out there to be published. That Same. would be great. Yes. All right. Before I let you go, I got to ask you the Mary question. So Jay Armstrong, who is recently retired, he was a high school English teacher when he was teaching, he would give his class, they'd be uh, high school seniors, he would give them the lyrics to Thunder Road, and they would read them, they would treat it like a poem, and then he would ask the question, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? So, Michael, that is your question. Does Mary I, get in the car? I have been fascinated by the answers that you get to this question. I, obviously, they're Bruce will not admit either way what it right. is. So it's really up to your interpretation. My interpretation is that she does not. And this is my, I'll make my case for it. Please do. I think a lot of Bruce's work at that time was about the two, the two groups of people in every town, in every small town. There were the people that were trying to escape and had ambitions to do something else. And then there are the people who stay behind and are the proverbial bigger fish in a smaller pond. And I think the way Bruce described it at one point, he said, there are people that go on to do extraordinary things 
And then there are the people that hold the world together, which is a more eloquent way of explaining it. And to me, his role was always that ambitious guy, which he fulfilled. He went on and did amazing things, even though he ironically lives 10 miles from where he grew up. But he did go out into the world and do all that stuff. But to me, Mary always represented the, the, the prom queen who stayed behind and was the popular girl in her town for most of her life. And that's all it was really meant to represent. It wasn't to me a story of heartbreak so much as it was symbolism of this is the really popular girl in high school who's still there when you go back the week Thanksgiving to see your family. She's still there. And then he was the guy that went on to to try to make a name for himself somewhere. And I think the fact that it's the first song in the album, to me, underscores that because the rest of the album, he's out, right? The next song, I think, is 10th Avenue Freeze out and it's him and Clarence out on the town and all the pretties yeah. waving their hands. So he's left. He's off doing it on in song two. So I, to me, that's how I read it. But if you had a case to make the other way, you could easily make that case. I love that answer. I've been on a string of no's. I have lately, I've gotten a lot of no's. I don't like mentally keep track. And at one point I had about 60% yes, 40% no. I think I might be 50-50 at this point. And I just, every once in a while, I'll get a guest who isn't a Bruce fan and they will push back. I don't know. And I'm like, you don't have to know. <laughs> read this, listen well, to the, the song, read the song. And there is no right answer. The, I mean, uh, the, but to me, the clues of the burnout Chevrolets where there were a lot of people tried and failed to get married yeah. to leave <laughs> and they couldn't. So I yeah. think what you're betting on, it was Bruce, the guy that convinced her to go. I, I think the odds were against it. But you, yeah, who knows? who knows? It's an eternal mystery. Absolutely. Maybe John Landau will weigh in someday and tell us. Yes. Uh, someone asked me once if if you ever did get lucky enough to have Bruce would you ask him the Mary question? I said, of course I'd ask him the Mary question. And just because if he thinks she gets in the car, doesn't necessarily mean she does because that's the whole purpose. A song can make its own. We go back to my Lawrence Block quote, right? He thought that he, he agreed with me. He thought that's what the character did. I think Bruce has said in the past when they when he's been asked, he says, I like to think so. Yeah, there you go. So he's he's so he's yeah, he's, exactly. he's opening it up for both interpretations. There we you know? go. Yeah, Michael, this was a blast. Thank you so much for taking time. It was a joy. Continued success. Let's stay in touch. If you end up going to a show, I'd love for you to come back and join me and talk about it. Give your thoughts on the somewhat static set list and your thoughts of seeing him on this fresh journey. I did want to tell one other story before I let you go. Sure. I had a guy on that in the making me think as you're saying about in the reunion tour, you're like, Oh, mm -hmm. I've got to go see him. And the guest, this was a couple of years ago. He says, Jesse, I was sitting there in the pit, standing in the pit. And I was thinking, this is it. This is the pinnacle of my Springsteen for fandom. This is, they've gotten back together, they played, and we may get every once in a while, they'll put the band back together and play. But really, my life as a Bruce Springsteen fan, this is the pinnacle. He says, I want to tell that guy, you don't know what you've got coming. You've got the <laughs> rising. You've got magic. You've got wrecking ball. You have worldwide tours. You have Broadway. You have letter to you coming. You you have no idea. There, this is just halftime. It's amazing how many artists would sign on just for that career and yeah. body of work. Like everybody would sign on for that, and that is, it, yeah, it literally is the second. And that is why I, my eye is turned towards that Inglewood show. Yeah, like I feel like that's the place to be. I um, think that's great. So we'll see. But I'll right. come on anytime, Jesse. This has been so much fun. I, I love talking about it. this. Thank you. All right, listeners, please be careful, be safe, be kind. And remember, if we open up our hearts, love won't forsake us. Just let the music take us and carry us home. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. 
there we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast, with my brother in time, Charles Skaggs. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Settlers and Bruce. The theme for Settlers and Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.